What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino, and today I'm joined by a whole bunch of uh, fellow PharmDs, student PharmDs. Um, I got some in-house and some all the way from the, the West Coast um, down in uh, California. And uh, Dr. Swathi is the, we'll call her the ringleader for today. Um, she's back with us again. It's been a couple, uh, I think this is her third time now, right, Swathi? Mm-hmm. So three times on the podcast, and um, so she's got several friends with her and uh, today, and we're going to kind of go through a pretty interesting topic. So, Swathi, so how's it going? I'm great. How are you doing? Can't complain at all. So um, can you introduce a little, your crew to us a little bit, since we got so many people on the call today? Yeah, definitely. So we have uh, my residency program director, Dr. Pam Tarlow. And then we have our four students, but if you guys want to go around and give a little like mini intro about yourself. Dr. Charlie, do you want to start? I'd love to. I am very happy to be involved with this and to have so many students with us. Uh, I'm an integrative health pharmacist, and I've had the pleasure of working with all these students, Dr. Swathi in particular, for a long time. And um, these four really bright, happy students for the last five and a half weeks. And we're thrilled to be able to present some in, in very important, interesting, maybe a little unconventional information for your listeners. That's excellent. So uh, can I can we get our, uh, our happy students to introduce themselves to you? You guys cool with that? Sophie, yeah. would you like to start, please? Of course. Uh, my name is Sophia Trabaci and I go to Marshall B. Ketchum. Uh, I am obviously a fourth year a pharmacy student, and I grew up in Southern California, born and raised. And yeah, I think I'll take the lead and uh, introduce Andy. Hi, my name is Andy. I'm also a fourth year APPY student. I'm going to USC School of Pharmacy. I also grew up in Southern California, um, and we're in Dr. Carlos and Dr. Varanasi's rotation. It's been great so far. And um, I guess Tiffany, if you want to. Hi, my name is Tiffany. I also go to USC and I'm a fourth year AFI student. Um, I was also born and raised in Southern California. And um, so far I've been really, I've enjoyed Dr. Tarlow's um, AFI program so far. And I'm going to pass it on to Beatrice. Hi, I'm uh, Beatrice. Um, I'm also a fourth year AFI student. I go to Western University of Health Sciences. All right. Good to meet y'all. Um, and I'll have Ryan as one of my happy students down at uh, MUSC in South Carolina. Um, I have him say hey real quick as well. Yeah. So uh, I'm Ryan Smiley and I'm a fourth year student with Dr. Gravino at MUSC. And yeah, you guys are throwing me off with uh, USC. I was thinking yeah. <laughs> I'm so used to USC being Southern, uh, South Carolina, but yeah, I guess yeah. Southern California has the right to the that other too. USC. The, yeah, <laughs> the the real USC by most people's opinion, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, hey Bailey, can you hear us? Do you want to say hey real quick? Yeah, hi, I'm Bailey. I go to MUSC as well and I'm a fourth year student on rotation with Dr. Corvino. And Bailey's joining us today, not feeling well and still jumping in <laughs> and coming uh, via distance on the podcast. So Bailey, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
All right, y'all. So, um, Dr. Swathi, I'll let you kind of take it away and uh, let's get going. But can you can you kind of introduce the topic for us a little bit and we'll go from there? Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to start off with some definitions and a little bit of background before jumping into the adaptogens because there's so much to them. So even before defining adaptogen, I'd really like to define integrative health pharmacy and what that is. And what I've been, what I've had the pleasure really of specializing in this entire past year. So how Dr. Tarlin and I define it is the intersection of many modalities of medicine. So that means it can be a combination of multiple methodologies of health and wellness, and that possibility of integrating various elements into the patient's regimen. So that could include anything from like nutrition to homeopathy to therapeutic aromatherapy and mindfulness, and really the list goes on, including herbs that you guys will hear about today. Um, so yeah, I really wanted to create that distinction as well, that we really do talk about a combination of conventional pharmacotherapy, as well as all these other modalities, rather than thinking about like a substitution, we think about it more as like, as an addition or as an adjunct therapy. Great. We have that. Um, and then moving on to adaptogens. So adaptogens are natural substances, generally herbs, and the ones we're going to talk about today are herbs, um, that are considered to help the body adapt to stress. And so adaptogens help the body maintain its own homeostasis for adapting to a lot of external factors that, I mean, are inevitable in our lives. So many unexpected things and the expected things, but those stressors and how we deal with them. And so it really just helps the, the body and the overall resilience of the body. And so we're going to chat about quite a few adaptogens today, or the students will um, give their brief overview of all the different adaptogens. And they'll talk about some of the conditions and some of the populations that it's been studied in. Um, but overall, a lot of the ones that we're talking about today are great for most patient populations. Um, and so I wanted to give a little more background. So we talked about integrative health pharmacy. We talked about adaptogens. Just a little more background as well on the fact that to start that they're dietary supplements, what we're talking about. So that means that they're not FDA approved. So they don't have specific indications like we would think about for a pharmaceutical agent like aspirin or something, but that they are regulated by the FDA and the FTC. So making that distinction. Um, and that what we'll talk about relate to structure function claims. So like supporting brain health or supporting bone health or something like that, rather than talking about what it's like indicated for through an FDA um, indication. Okay. And what we definitely, we had so many good conversations about this over the past few weeks about how challenging it is to comprehend exactly what an herb means and how it works in the body and how it's so different from what we're used to talking about with a pharmaceutical agent, because pharmaceutical agents were used to that one molecule, one effect. And so with this, it's so different because it's so many molecules, so many compounds, so many constituents in the herbs. We're talking about the whole plant. Um, and then the fact that it can work in so many places in the body and regulate so many different systems or be a part of that regulation um, process. So yes, very complicated, very multifaceted. Um, and so we've been able to look at a lot of the research with a very critical like clinical eye and evaluate what is the best to be presented today and what is the best really for clinicians to know. That's what we kept coming back to is what do we want clinicians to know. Um, and so that opens up the whole discussion of risks versus benefits. 
Um, so a lot of the ones we'll talk about today, you guys will hear there's so many amazing benefits. And for the most part, they outweigh the risks. But of course, the students will talk about when certain patient populations shouldn't be taking some versus others and when they should be advised against versus um, otherwise. So one of the examples of that is for pregnancy and lactation, we don't advise that any of these herbs be taken in that population just because of the, the lack of studies. Yeah. So that's, that's the very, very like background overview before we jump into adaptogens. Um, but I hope that's helpful to your viewership or your, your listenership, if that's a word. Um, okay, so I think we'll start with ashwagandha with Sophia. Thank you, Dr. Swathi. Uh, that was a really great summary. Uh, so ashwagandha. Uh, ashwagandha is found in dry areas, typically seen in India, the Middle East, and parts of Africa. And for thousands of years, the ashwagandha root has been used in traditional Indian medicine, and um, it dates back as far as 6000 BC. So the name itself um, comes from the literal, literal translation, smell of horse. And the root smells a bit like horse and the idea is to give you the strength and energy of a wild horse. So um, in the traditional Indian medicine, it's classified as rasiana, which means um, it's believed to lead to a long life. And it's, um, this particular adaptogen enhances the body's resilience to stress and can improve the body's defense against disease by improving the cell-mediated immunity. It's commonly used uh, as a reduction of feelings of anxiety and a boost in mood. And I've looked up a few clinical trials that support its use. Um, one of the clinical research that I've looked up was um, this eight-week randomized double-blind placebo control study that was um, done in India. It was a total of 60 uh, patients uh, with the use of ashwagandha versus the placebo. And um, this, as a result, this study was found that the ashwagandha extract had improved uh, sleep quality and sleep onset in patients who um, had insomnia. So the dose of 300 milligrams twice daily was a potential candidate for a treatment of insomnia and anxiety. And the patient population that would, that would benefit from this would be um, patients that are looking to improve stress resilience, who want to improve their uh, sleep cycle, have a physical and mental stress, and want to restore a sense of calmlessness. And some of the typical questions that patients um, have asked about before have been, you know, what side effects should I look out for taking ashwagandha? And um, the answer to this is, you know, upset stomach, feeling tired, and sleeplessness. And another question was, you know, how much and when should I take the ashwagandha? And, uh, the, you know, the dosage really varies on um, what your needs are. So anywhere from 250 milligrams to 500 milligrams per day, you can split this, uh, you know, take it in the morning and once at night or just take it all at once um, uh, before, before sleep. And another question was, you know, will ashwagandha keep me awake? Uh, no, ashwagandha is supposed to improve the quality of sleep, so it may help with the treatment of insomnia. And the leaves of the plant contain the compound um, triethylene glycol, which promotes sleep induction. And a few things that I would um, counsel with would be, you know, if ashwagandha is taken on an empty stomach, and if you experience any upset stomach, you know, consider taking it with a small amounts of food. Um, avoid beer, wine, or any mixed drinks that contain alcohol because this product can cause sleepy, um, sleeplessness or drowsiness. 
And another study that I did um, look into was that ashwagandha might have an additive effect on uh, anti-diabetic drugs. So it might increase the risk of hypoglycemia in, pa in certain patients, but nothing to be too concerned about. Um, it's really, I would recommend to monitor your blood sugar levels. And in case um, this is something new, I would definitely keep like a candy glucose tablets or juice on hand. Um, especially if you have any low fasting glucose levels. And um, the next topic I wanted to talk about was uh, Eleuthero. And um, Eleuthero is actually considered Siberian, it's also called Siberian ginseng. It's a small woody shrub that is native to southeastern Russia, northern China, Korea, and Japan. Um, it is not related to a true ginseng. Its claims are very similar um, in the medicinal properties to Panax ginseng. However, it does not have this, it is not a ginseng. Um, a few years ago, growers of the ginseng from Wisconsin were able to get a legislation through a farm bill that prohibited um, the calling of um, elethro uh, ginseng. And it's grown in an area called um, forgive me if I'm uh, pronouncing this incorrectly, but Hilungjian, which means Black River Dragon, it's located against the uh, Russian border and um, Elithro has been used for thousands of years and it's, it's one of the great health treasures of China. So there's even a quote that dates back 2000 years ago that says, I would rather have a handful of Elithro than a cartload of gems. And uh, this adaptogen works um, by helping the body adapt to stress, acting on a, the adrenals and mediating the body's uh, stress response. And uh, the population that can improve with this adaptogen is anybody, typically anyone. Um, orally, people use this um, adaptogen to improve general health, cognitive functions, support memory and endurance. And, um, some of the clinical trials that I found to support its use was um, a, a clinical trial that indicated that to improve the memory um, while using the elethro, um, it was a combination with an herb that was called di uh, drynaria. And this was a 12 week um, study that, re that uh, had supported to help with memory and attention. And another double-blind placebo control study was done to compare the glucose metabolism effects. And there, this was really interesting. Um, this was done with type two diabetes patients and it had shown a A1C decrease of 0.8%. So there's, there's many indications for um, elethro and I would definitely you know, consider this um, with any specific population that wants to benefit with um, any patient who has a hard time adapting to change, who suffers from mild to moderate chronic fatigue, and anyone who wants to improve their cognitive function and memory. Some of the questions that were commonly asked about the, this um, adaptogen was, why, what are the benefits that compare to ginseng? Why, um, why is it comparable to ginseng? It's, it's not a true ginseng, but however, it does it is a less potent um, adaptogen considered to uh, similar to panax ginseng. And uh, another really common question was how fast does the eleuthero work? And it really depends on 
the reasons why the patient is taking it. Some symptoms can improve within two days, generally takes like four to five days for, for the treatment to work. And um, it really, the best results have been shown after a month. And uh, some top things that I would recommend for pharmacists to know is um, this could cause palpitation, tachycardia, and hypertension. So it's very, it should be used cautiously in patients with cardiovascular disorders. You know, it should be contraindicated in patients that exceed blood pressures over 180, over 90. And um, a few things that I would counsel on is, you know, take it in the morning to avoid the disruption of, you know, your sleep cycle. And it's safe to take it up to three months. Uh, take it anywhere between 300 to 1200 milligrams daily and do not exceed three to six grams. And I, um, if there's any questions, if not, I will uh, pass this along to Tiffany. So one of the things I always think of myself is like when I'm thinking of like ginseng and several mm -hmm. others as well, but ginseng, I always think of a, a potential interaction with like antiplatelet medications or blood thinners, things like that. Does this carry the same sort of risk where it could decrease platelet aggregation uh, leading to increased chance of bleed? Not, um, nothing that I've, I've seen. Um, it shouldn't, it has, it, it does inhibit, it can inhibit uh, CYP2C9. There's been um, in vitro studies, but there's always a contraindicating um, message when I look into clinical trials. Some trials uh, say that it might and some say it doesn't. So I really wouldn't consider this something to be cautious about unless, you know, every, all of these adapt, adapt, adaptogens, I would definitely recommend uh, patients to let their, you know, healthcare providers know about. So if in case they are taking it with an antiplatelet, I would definitely consider um, patients talking to their doctors beforehand. Okay, so I'm going to start talking about um, Asian ginseng, otherwise known as Chinese ginseng. But first, I'm going to give a mini history overview. Um, the scientific name is Panax ginseng, and it's an herb known to be an adaptogen. While many species may be referred to as ginseng, typically the term ginseng is associated with the species Panax ginseng, and sometimes it's even called true ginseng. Um, Panax ginseng grows in Korea, northeastern China, and even Russia, and it plays a major role in traditional Chinese medicine. In traditional Chinese medicine, Panax ginseng is known to be effective for one's vitality and to replenish energy, also known as the qi. The usual effect of replenishing qi is not to provide an energy boost the same way caffeine or amphetamines would. It's used to enhance one's well-being. So as a side note, it's, um, it's interesting that the word panax is derived from the Greek word for all healing. Um, but more specifically, it's thought to help someone recover from illness as well as reduce the chance of getting ill and promote health and longevity. Chinese medicine believes that balance should be maintained between the yin and the yang forces, and Panax ginseng is known to promote the yang, while American ginseng, which I'll talk about later, is known to promote the yin. 
and medicinally, the root is considered the most valuable part of the plant in providing the pharmacologically active ginsenicides. Um, it's the ginsenicides that are studied in order to measure the effectiveness of Panax ginseng. The extract is standardized, meaning that the sample has a constant safety and efficacy. And there are anecdotal reports that claim that it's warming, meaning that it can improve body circulation and increase body temperature, but these effects haven't really been studied so much. It's also referred to as a, a general well-being supplement, like I mentioned earlier, because it potentially affects the whole entire body as opposed to particular organs the, same, the way um, the medications we learn about in school would. So it, this basically, it supports a traditional view that Panax ginseng is a tonic that can revitalize the functioning of the organism as a whole. And there is no equivalent concept or treatment in Western medicine. And as for the therapeutic uses, Panax ginseng, as many of us know, it's one of the most widely recognized herbs and it has many, many, many treatment claims. So in addition to being used for vitality, results of several clinical research studies um, that demonstrate that Panax ginseng may improve cognitive function and more specifically increased alertness. And they also found that it can be useful in helping immune function, conditions related to diabetes, erectile dysfunction, but the evidence is very conflicting. Um, whether it can improve, improve strength and stamina remains unknown. And overall, more research needs to be done in order to make concrete, concrete claims about any of the benefits of Panax ginseng. So some questions someone may ask is how much is it safe to take per day? So long-term studies have not been done on Panax ginseng, but it is recommended to take 200 milligrams of the standardized extract per day for up to six months. Um, and some may, someone may ask if it has to be taken with food and it doesn't have to be taken with, with food, but it is suggested to be taken with a small, small meal because it may cause possible GI irritation. And it's also suggested that you take it with a full glass of water. Uh, some things that pharmacists would wanna know is that there's a, a, the risk of interaction between Panax ginseng and medications is relatively low. But when Panax ginseng is given with an antiplatelet or anticoagulant, especially warfarin, bleeding may occur and therapy may need to be modified. Additionally, there can be interactions with anti-diabetes drugs because um, the use may enhance blood glucose lowering effect. So blood glucose levels should be monitored. And if a patient has uncontrolled blood pressure or hypertension, Panax ginseng can go either way. It can either increase or decrease a patient's blood pressure. So blood pressure should be monitored too. And there could be a possible interaction with CYP3A4 substrates. So it's important to tell your doctor if you're choosing to implement Panax ginseng into your life just so that they can guide you um, in the right direction. The main counseling point I would give a patient is that orally Panax ginseng is well tolerated, but some patients may experience some side effects. And um, some of these may be such as, um, it was, hold on just a moment. I had mentioned the GI irritation earlier, but it can also have some side effects such as insomnia. So that's why it's better to use it earlier in the day 
And headache may also occur. And just like many other herbs, it's important to stop taking it one week before surgery because of the bleeding risk. And now I'm gonna speak a little bit about American ginseng, which is scientifically known as Panax quincifolius. It's sometimes confused with Panax ginseng, and it's for obvious reasons, just because it's referred to as American ginseng. But um, these adaptogens may be similar in some ways, but it's very important to know that they aren't the same. American ginseng grows mainly in Northern America with much of it being produced in Ontario, Canada. And just like Panax ginseng, Panax quincifolius contains ginsenicides, but in lesser amounts, which, um, and so yeah, those are what's also providing the, the biological effect in this compound. And even less research has been done on Panax quincifolius. And just like I mentioned before, American ginseng is known to promote the yin. And as opposed to Panax ginseng, Panax quincifolius has more of a cooling effect. So just like Asian or Chinese ginseng, American ginseng has many treatment claims and many of them overlap with each other. So it's reported to be used in people who have diabetes because it can lower one's blood sugar. And some of the other treatment claims include immune support, respiratory tract infections, fatigue, immunostimulation, working memory, strength and stamina, and athletic performance, but more research needs to be done in order to make these claims as well. So some questions that a patient may ask again about American ginseng is that how much is safe to take per day? So just like with Panax ginseng, it hasn't been studied much, but a major resource um, said, a major database said that 100 to 3000 milligrams of American ginseng daily has been safely used for up to 12 weeks. And now another question that many people may wonder is what's the difference between Asian ginseng and American ginseng? And they do have a lot of overlap in their uses and there's a lot of uh, contradiction in studies that have been done, but the ginsenicide, the ginsenicide content of Panax quincofolius is lower than Panax ginseng. So that's why some people may refer to it as the weaker ginseng. Um, another difference is the price. American ginseng is typically more affordable but um, these two adaptogens have similar effects. So if I had to suggest one, which I wouldn't, I would always refer a patient to um, a specialist, but I would start out with the less expensive one to see if it has any benefits. Um, and then the top things that pharmacists should know about American ginseng is that just like Panax ginseng, there are not so many, um, there aren't that many interactions, but the interactions that it does have are important such as the same bleeding risk interaction with warfarin and blood glucose should be monitored and the patient's hypertension should also be monitored. And it can also induce CYP3A4. And just like Panax ginseng, it doesn't have to be taken with food, but it's suggested to be taken with food in case stomach upset may occur and side effects to look out for are possible headaches, insomnia, and GI disturbances. If there are any questions, I can answer them now. Otherwise, I'll be passing it on to Andy to talk about his adaptogens. I think we're gonna have Beatrice go next. So okay. thank you, Tiffany. I'm gonna talk about Rhodiola. Uh, first, I'll give a mini history. Uh, Rhodiola is a 
Hassan from Siberia. His scientific name is Rogela rosea, uh, which is also known as golden root, rose root, or arctic root. Uh, and that's because it grows well in dry and cold, uh, dry cold climates. The medicinal compounds of Rogela rosea comes from the root of the plant. The people in Russia and Scandinavian countries have used Rogela to treat anxiety, fatigue, and depression for centuries. Uh, Rogella contains uh, rosaridine salidroside and um, three cinnamon alcohol visanocides, uh, rosavine, rosin, and rosarine. These are five marker compounds of Rogella rosea. Rogella also contains flavonoids, phenylethanol derivatives, monoterpenes, and terpenes. In, um, in vitro, in vitro rhodiola inhibits uh, monamine oxidases A and B, suggesting that it has an antidepressant effect. Rhodiola rosea is usually taken in capsule form, but is also available in other forms, such as extracts and teas. Um, rhodiola functions to support the body's natural resistance and adaptations to stressful influences. Numerous clinical studies have demonstrated a positive uh, effect of um, rhodiola roots extract, of rhodiola root extract on healthy mood. Um, some of others, uh, I looked at a few clinical reviews that was done. One of these studies is a review article uh, on traditional use, chemical composition, pharmacology, and clinical efficacy of uh, rhodiola. Um, uh, and, um, the summary, uh, the, uh, the summary of the pharmacological effect and uh, rhodiola, the summary of the pharmacological effects of rhodiola uh, extracts uh, were uh, mentioned in this poll. The most important ones are um, it has adaptogenic and stress protective effects, cardioprotective effects, antioxidant effects, um, stimulating effect on, on the central nervous system, including effects on cognitive functions, such as attention, memory, and learning, uh, anti-fatigue effect, anti-depressive effect, and also endocrine activity normalizing. Um, and um, there are other uh, clinical reviews as well. Um, patients, patient population who could benefit Rogella are uh, patients uh, with a low mood and or depressed. Um, the, the questions, some questions that patients may ask are, uh, what dose of Rogella can I take daily? Um, it is recommended to take uh, between 200 to 600 milligram daily. Another question that they, uh, cannot, they usually ask is, can someone who's Competitive, take it. Is rhodiola a banned substance? Yes, the answer is yes. It can it can be because rhodiola is more moderate and isn't on any list of banned substance. So a daily a daily dose of 100, 170 milligram per day for four weeks was evaluated in a study examining athletic performance. Another question that um, uh, patients usually ask is, can I take rhodiola with my other medications? Well, the answer is um, it depends. It depends on what kind of medication you're taking. There are some medications that require monitoring blood sugar or bleeding risk, and those need to be washed very carefully. Uh, if you're taking metformin or an allergy medication, there shouldn't be a problem. There might be a problem with medications with a narrow therapeutic spectrum, especially the ones that can cause bleeding, uh, such as warfarin. Also, there might be some interactions um, 
with uh, um, SSRI. So it would be wise to take Rogella um, five, six hours apart from other medications. Uh, the, uh, uh, the most important points that pharmacists should know is that um, Rodella can inhibit CYP3A4 um, so, um, and affect the intracellular concentrations of drugs metabolized by this enzyme. And um, the other one is that Rodella mostly inhibits CYP2C9, um, I'm sorry, modestly inhibits CYP2C9. So again, uh, it can affect drugs metabolized by this enzyme, such as warfarin and phenytoin. Um, the ones that have a narrow therapeutic uh, index. Um, the um, patient counseling points um, that I would uh, give is um, if, uh, if you are taking Rogella, uh, if you're taking other medications, it's, uh, I, I recommend consulting your doctor before taking Rogella. Um, it, the side effects that Rogella has uh, is, uh, could be dry mouth, or feeling dizzy. Also, um, healthy changes brought on by adding uh, supplements and herbs usually happens gradually. So the results differ for each individual. It can take anywhere from days to weeks. So for, your, for their own interest, uh, I recommend keep a log of when you take it and make notes of stress levels, mental clarity, and, over, and general well-being. The next, um, um, the next, uh, uh, herb that I want to talk about is Shisandra. Um, Shisandra is a plant. The scientific name is Shisandra chinesis. Um, Shisandra has been used for healing purposes in traditional medicine for more than 2,000 years. It has a long history of use in traditional Chinese medicine to treat coughs, liver conditions, stomach disorders, um, as an, and as an adaptogen. It also is used in various formulas for fatigue and sleep. In its Chinese name is Wu Wu Wei Ti, which means five flavor food, um, which uh, reflects the five flavors recognized in traditional Chinese medicine: sour, bitter, sweet, pungent, and salty. Salty and sour tastes were believed to have effects on the liver and testicles, while the bitter and astringent properties were thought to be beneficial to the heart and lungs. The sweet component was believed to have effects on the stomach. The plant has also been traditionally used to manage stress, balance fluid levels, improve sexual uh, stamina, treat rash, um, and many other um, conditions. Um, the proposed um, uh, therapeutic uses um, as, um, as used as an adaptogen for increasing resistance to disease and stress, uh, increasing energy, and increasing physical performance and endurance. Also, it is commonly used for liver protection. Um, again, there are uh, uh, clinical um, reviews supporting the therapeutic effects of Shisandra. Um, one of these uh, clinical reviews is um, uh, protective effect of acetic polysaccharide from Shisandra chinesis on acute uh, ethanol-induced liver injury, uh, which um, in this study, uh, they examined the effect and mechanism of Shisandra chinesis acetic polysaccharide on the liver injury induced by ethanol. Uh, um, uh, this, this, uh, the liver injury models were both uh, of mice and human liver carcinoma cell. And the results show that um, 
schisandrogenesis uh, acidic polysaccharide significantly reduces uh, aspartate aminotransferase and alanine aminotransferase in uh, levels in, in the injured liver, injured liver, I'm sorry, injured liver, and in the human liver carcinoma cells. Um, the specific patient population who can benefit from schisandra are patients who have stress and low energy, and they have um, also they have liver problems. Um, the questions that you patients ask is, do I take schisandra with food? The answer is yes, it will be better to take it. The answer is that uh, it will be better to take without food. Um, another question that they usually ask is, can I take schisandra with my uh, medications? Again, it depends on what kind of medication they're taking. There are some medications that require monitoring blood sugar or bleeding risk, and those need to be washed very carefully. Um, same as uh, uh, rhodiola, if they're taking metformin or an allergy medication, there shouldn't be a problem, but there might be a problem with medications with narrow uh, spectrum, um, the ones that cause a bleeding. So I recommend asking your prescriber or a specialized practitioner. Another ask is, does schisandra have any nutritional value? Um, yes, it does. In addition to providing everything else that I uh, we discussed <coughs> above, it has some uh, nutritional value too. It has some vitamins in it, such as vitamin C and vitamin E. Um, pharmacists should know that um, uh, animal studies suggest schisandra inhibits CYP3-4 and CYP1A2 and can affect the intracellular concentration of drugs metabolized by these enzymes. Um, also, um, uh, it can, um, lab and human studies suggest that schisandra can inhibit PGP activity and may interfere with the metabolism of certain drugs. Um, patient counseling, uh, the, the main um, patient counseling points um, that I would say is that um, take extra care uh, and check with your doctor if you have liver problems before taking schisandra. And, um, uh, use caution if you're taking drugs that thin your blood, like warfarin, or drugs like prednisone, tacrolimus. Um, it's, it would be better to take caution and um, check with your doctor. Um, and if, there's if there isn't any question, I will pass on to Andy. Oh, well, why don't we take a pause? Is there, are there any questions from anyone? I kind of have like a, a general question. It's not really for any of the specific drugs that have been talked about. So I was kind of waiting for the end, but I guess if we're, if we're going now, um, where in the uh, like course of therapy do you add these medication or these herbal supplements on? Is it when you're first starting off, do you add it then? Or if they failed therapy, um, basically just when would you try to be like, try to add these in? Maybe I'll take that answer. Um, this is Pam Tarlow. Um, I've had quite a few years experience talking to clinicians and patients and, and um, that's a really good question. It depends on what your level of practice is. So I might do it a little differently than you would your first year out. And um, my main reason, even 25 years ago for learning this and why I want all my students to know about this is not so much the suggesting of them, but patients are taking them. And we don't know what to do with them when they say, ashwagandha, ashwa what, you know? 
and um, and where that fits in. And so, if you, it was uh, 25 years ago, it was the patients that encouraged me to learn about that to be a good practicing pharmacist, and it still is now. And now patients know all about these kind of things, particularly when they're concerned about their immune system or their energy level. But that being said. Um, are you asking about whether it started at the same time as pharmacotherapy or at the beginning of symptoms or is that what you're asking or kind of basically like if you are feeling depressed and, and you wanted to not be depressed obviously but um would you start it at the same time as like an ssri or would you say wait till after they weren't having really good uh, response to it. Um, basically, when would you suggest it? Um, if they're already taking it, obviously, it would be helpful to know what kind of interactions there would be. But Sure, sure that really does. That's an individual thing. And, and that's where this, this great part about being a clinician that works with the patient. So it's usually patient-directed. Sometimes I get questions that I don't want to take the medication my doctor is prescribing. And I ask them, is it medically necessary? And for mild depression, we may determine it's not medically necessary, just may be preferable. So then I might suggest some of these adaptogens, maybe even in combination, that might help and give it a trial. Uh, if they are depressed and they can't go to work and their relationships are falling apart, et cetera, Maybe let's see what a trial of the medication where the doctor is monitoring them and they're also seeing the therapist. And, and speaking of depression, many times therapists will send their patients to us. And because the patient has real reasons why they don't want to be on SSRIs, not just because they don't want to, there may be medical or pharmaceutical reasons why they shouldn't. So a lot has to depend on who, who the patient is, who the practitioner is, how comfortable they feel, how many people they've worked with, and whether there's time or not. Because sometimes there isn't. There's life events that happen. And as most of the students have said, and, and Andy will concur with his, sometimes you don't have a month to wait for maximum effects. And we know that when we choose medications too. So it could be any and all. The, the last part to tell you, it's a good question, is that there are, at least on the West Coast in the LA area, um, there are physicians, prescribers who are familiar with herbs and will co-prescribe. That's another reason why I want students, pharmacy students and all clinicians to know, because while we should keep in mind everything that's been said, there may be an expert prescriber that knows how to use that. And so I have learned from them when they introduce them. And it really is a patient-by-patient -patient decision. Does that help? Oh, of course, yes. And, and yeah. I really like, too, like what you said in the beginning about you know, a lot of times patients are just coming to you and they're already taking these. They've self-diagnosed. They've put themselves on these medications. I actually literally just got done talking to my PA students about this because I'm saying when you're doing a like a med reconciliation or you know, and you're talking to a patient for the first time, ask them specifically about herbal supplements because a lot of patients won't even consider them medications. They consider them natural and all that. And so having an idea of like where to go when you're presented with uh, a patient that is on multiple medication or multiple herbal supplements or adaptogens or whatever, um, I think is super important. And I think there's there's obviously still clinicians that are very like anti the natural 
you know, pathway and things like that. But regardless of what side of the spectrum you fall on, especially as a farm D, I feel like you're the, the drug expert. You should be very familiar with this stuff. So even if you're not looking to actively, you know, put patients on these or prescribe them, you certainly need to know the interactions, you need to know what they're, you know, when somebody says a word, you need to know, be familiar that that's a real herbal supplement and just have a general understanding. I think that's something that's very lacking in modern day curriculums and things like that that needs to be addressed, um, regardless of which way. It doesn't mean you have to prescribe these for every single patient, but having understanding and being able to look for drug drug interactions is pretty vital, I would say, as a especially as a good clinical pharmacist. <laughs> Thoroughly agree, and, and even more appreciate you having us on today towards that end. No problem. Thank you. Great. Um, should we go on? We've saved some of the best for last. They're all the best. <laughs> there we go. The hardest part of this project for me was reducing the list to eight because <laughs> we left off some really good ones. Well, we can all do right, a follow-up for sure if we need to. Sure. Andy, please. So for the mushrooms, um, so for the first mushroom, we have turkey tail. So just over a, a mini overview of turkey tail. It is a type of fungus. Um, its scientific name is Coriolis versicolor or more commonly known as Tremides versicolor. So that's what you'll most commonly see on the packaging. Um, some of the, some other common names of turkey tail include polysaccharide K, PSK, polysaccharide peptide or PSP and Crestin. And turkey tail is found throughout Europe, North America, and Asia, so it's a pretty common mushroom. Turkey tail grows in layers on tree trunks, stumps, and fallen trees. Um, so a little bit about the therapy. PSK is a pharmaceutical-grade product in Japan, derived from Tremedes persicolor that has been used in cancer treatment for more than 30 years, so it's at, it has a history in Japan. Um, both PSK and PSP are the two main polysaccharide components of um, turkey tail that can be isolated and they have both shown success in cancer patients. So some proposed therapeutic uses of turkey tail, it's been studied in cancer prevention, reducing the effects of chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Um, it can uh, modulate or stimulate the immune system and it has some prebiotic uses as well. Um, the first study I looked at for um, turkey tail is um, it's a phase one clinical trial of Tremedes versicolor in women with breast cancer. So this is a uh, standard phase one clinical trial with nine participants, ranging from the ages of 21 to 75, with stage one to three breast cancer who have undergone surgery and chemotherapy and are now ready to start radiation therapy. Um, this study established the safety of administering three, six, and nine gram provided daily doses of turkey tail for six weeks in patients um, after radiation therapy. Um, one of the most notable results of the study is that turkey tail was able to increase natural killer cell uh, tumorcidal activity at six grams per day, most, uh, most notably at six grams per day. And um, this shows that turkey tail used as an adjunct to standard cancer treatment can improve the immune status of um, immunocompromised patients, such as breast cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Um, this study also showed that using a turkey tail preparation of up to nine grams per day is considered to be safe and tolerable in women with breast cancer. Um, so looking back at the study, there was very minimal adverse events reported in the study. So even up to nine grams per day of turkey tail, turkey tail is um, uh, okay. 
The product used in this study was a 500 milligram capsule of Chinese versicolor. And I also looked at some other studies that showed um, turkey tails uses as a prebiotic and also in the prevention of Alzheimer's disease. If you guys have questions about that, we can go over that. Um, specific patient populations that could benefit from turkey tail include cancer patients on chemotherapy, um, patients undergoing radiation therapy, and people who are looking to improve their gut function. So if you use a probiotic, maybe if you add turkey tail, which is a prebiotic, it might help improve the effects of probiotics. Um, top three, but or just some common questions that could be asked about turkey tail. Um, will this interact with my medications? And one of the cool things that I noted about turkey tail is that there's very limited interactions with turkey tail and uh, pretty much any other medication. Um, although you should let your uh, primary healthcare provider know that you're going to be using turkey tail. So always keep note of that. Um, also, another question might be, is turkey tail only useful for cancer? And you can uh, say uh, turkey tail is also shown to have prebiotic effects. So this means that it can help improve the composition of the gut microbiome and be beneficial for one's gut health and that could um, lead to other health benefits as well, most likely. And also, can I take turkey tail capsule, capsules with food? And uh, according to the host defense website, um, Turkey tail capsules can be either taken uh, on an empty stomach or with food. And also some things that pharmacists should know about turkey tail. Turkey tail has shown promise as an adjunct therapy um, to support or modulate the immune system in cancer patients after radiation therapy. Um, also, there are no well-documented co uh, contraindications for turkey tail as well. So no well-documented patients or interactions with medications, which is a great uh, feature. Extracts of both PSK and PSP are available commercially as health supplement. So again, those were the polysaccharides present in turkey tail. And also turkey tail comes in liquid extract form, capsules, and powder forms. The liquid extract can be a, can come with a dropper or a spray, like a spray bottle. Um, some top three Patient counseling points for this uh, herb, it's going to be, there are no documented common side effects, but some possible side effects include darkened stool, um, darkened nail pigmentation, or diarrhea, although these side effects are rare. Um, you would want to avoid the use of this um, medication or this herb in pregnancy and lactation because of the lacking evidence of use. And it's uh, also safe to take at any time of the day. So they could take this in the morning, uh, midday, or at night, whatever's convenient for them. Um, okay, so for the next mushroom, the next one is reishi mushroom. A mini overview for reishi. It's also a type of fungus. Its scientific name is Ganoderma lucidum. Another common name that you might see is uh, lingji. The flesh of this mushroom is described as tough and woody and the color of the fruiting body of the mushroom is reddish brown. So um, reishi's active constituents are thought to be beta-glucans and triterpenes. Um, so beta-glucans are just polysaccharides, uh, polysaccharide complexes, and triterpenes are uh, just a chemical compound that's found in bearing herbs. Some uh, in vitro and animal studies show that reishi can have immunomodulatory effects, just like 
turkey tail as shown. Also, reishi spore powder is commonly used in traditional Chinese medicine. So I think that use of reishi dates back quite a bit. Um, some proposed therapeutic uses of reishi, it has been studied in cancer, um, strength and stamina, so maybe for athletes. It might be, also, it might have some benefit for um, lower urinary tract infections and may have some use in cardiovascular protective benefits. Also, um, I would need to double check on this, but maybe using turkey tail with reishi might have some antiviral activity as well. But that's something to be uh, into further. Um, and some studies on reishi. There's one study I looked into. It was an in vitro study on the anti-proliferative effects of triterpene extracts from reishi. So this study used um, triterpenes obtained from reishi mushrooms to treat lung cancer cells. And this is in uh, in vitro. Sorry if I said not sure if I said in vivo. This is in vitro. The cancer cells were treated with 12 different concentrations of the, of the triterpene powder for 24, 48, and 120 hour periods. Um, they used immunoblot analysis to examine the amount of apoptotic proteins in the cell after treatment with triterpene extracts. So that was their measurement standard. Um, they found that the 48 and 120 hour treatment groups seemed to experience the largest increase in apoptotic proteins in the cell. So that treatment period uh, seemed to be most effective. The results suggested a decrease in cell proliferation, which was correlated with a change in cell cycle progression and apoptosis. Also, the study found that triterpenes may be the active constituent in reishi that has these apoptotic effects in cancer cells. So, some more research on triterpenes and their effect on lung cancer cells may lead to new treatments for lung cancer. Um, some specific patient populations that could benefit are patients uh, with cancer undergoing chemotherapy, similar to turkey tail, uh, people suffering from fatigue, and also maybe people with a high risk for ASCVD. So um, just cardiovascular benefits there again. Some common questions that could be asked about reishi are, will this interact with my medications? Um, so reishi may interact with anticoagulants, antiplatelets, so it could increase your risk for bleeding. Um, it may interact with immunosuppressants as well, so it, it might counteract the effect of immunosuppressant medications because it, it could stimulate the immune system potentially. Um, also, so you should talk to your primary healthcare provider if you are using any of these medications and plan on using reishi as well. So post monitoring may be necessary in this situation. Um, what differentiates reishi from other medicinal mushrooms? Reishi contains a group of chemical compounds known as triterpenes, which is that compound mentioned in the study that is unique to reishi. I, I'm pretty sure, I read that in a few places, so I'm pretty sure that, that might be what differentiates reishi from other medicinal mushrooms. And yeah, it gives it its antioxidant properties. And how do I use reishi powder? It is safe taking it any time of the day, just like turkey tail. And you can, if you have it in powder form, you can mix it with your food or beverage, anything like that. Some things that pharmacists should know about reishi. So the, the normal therapeutic doses of reishi are considered to be uh, very safe for a healthy individual. This varies from like a half to 15 grams per day. People, um, and also some, 
itchiness and dryness of the mouth, throat, and nasal cavity have been reported with reishi if, if it has been used for three to six months. Um, and it's best to use reishi routinely as a part of your daily life to really get the benefits out of this, uh, out of this mushroom. And top three patient counseling points, reishi may increase the risk of bleeding in patients on anticoagulants and antiplatelets. So that's the interaction I mentioned before. And counsel, you should counsel patients who are on immunosuppressants by letting them know that reishi products may enhance the body's immune response, which might counteract the immunosuppressant medication effects. And also people with low blood pressure concerns may want to talk to their primary healthcare provider before using reishi because it can further lower uh, blood pressure. Okay. All right. Yeah. We've got questions on that. Oh, I just wanted to add a little small something before anyone pops in. Um, so the, the one thing that all the students were saying is that you should definitely talk to your primary care provider and you should talk to your doctor, but you should also talk to your pharmacist because your pharmacist is the one that knows everything about the medications or the medication experts. So I just wanted to add that in that, yes, you should hundred percent talk to your primary care provider because they should know everything that you're on, but also tell your pharmacist and something Dr. Charlo says that I really like, and I repeat maybe too frequently is that the most dangerous supplement is the one that we don't know about. So I think that that's really, really important and really telling for a really good patient practitioner relationship. And uh, going right off of that, so when the doctors find out that you know about these things, they tend to call you. So it really helps with the interprofessional collaboration. And we've worked um, Dr. Swathi and I have worked with Chinese medical colleges and they've called us about drug things. And so it's kind of nice just even to have a bit of information on this um, so that everyone who's involved with the patient care can know about it. And the pharmacist in some cases can be that hub. So if somebody was going to, you know, looking for to purchase some of these um, adaptogens or herbal supplements in general, uh, how, how do you kind of differentiate between the manufacturers and like, is there like with vitamins and things like that, we, we have uh, like the USP and things like that. Is that this, is there anything like that, any kind of like governing body over herbal supplements or is there any group they bring in as kind of like a, you know, uh, unbiased third party to test their um, quantities in their products and things like that. How can we kind of differentiate that and buy the best product available? Yep. Um, we do talk about that a lot. And I think we had a lengthy discussion on that this week. Um, and uh, so there are very few, if any, herbal products that are USP verified because USP mostly verifies single ingredient. As Dr. Swathi said at the beginning, these are multi, and all the students did, they're multi-constituent. Um, because they are regulated by FDA, they have to practice good manufacturing practices. And I'm insistent that the ones I use and recommend that they show us that they do and that they have, they test multiple times. They test their raw ingredients while they're manufacturing their finished products and expiration dates. So, uh, and there are some companies that cater more towards professionals and they have PhDs, herbalists on staff. Um, 
almost no end to the questions that we can ask them that they can't answer to the public. And so I, I go more towards that, especially when dealing with some of the patients that were mentioned. And then what about for um, clinical pharmacists or providers or any, who need to look up, like, and use some kind of a reference to look up some of these uh, adaptogens or, or uh, medications in general, the herbal supplements, what can, what's like y'all's go-to as far as, you hear me say y'all, I'm from South Carolina, um, <laughs> what, uh, what are y'all's kind of go-to for, you know, looking for the, this information, getting the best quality information from like a drug info standpoint? Yeah. So uh, would any of you like to answer that? That is what we start out this rotation with in the middle and at the end. Yes. So um, surprisingly, I, LexiComp has a lot of information on some of these herbs. So I, I've been using LexiComp and they have literature cited in their monographs and studies. I think it depends a lot on the herb also because for ginseng, for example, and I wanted to find out more about Asian ginseng versus American ginseng. If I searched just on Lexicomp, it just gave a, an umbrella. It was kind of, it mixed up the both, just like a lot of people naturally do when they're speaking about it. So for me, the best resource I was able to use was natural medicine. Um, and there were also a few apps that Dr. Tarlow and Dr. Swathi told us about, which are, um, I mean, they're reputable apps. They're based off of research. And I, Swathi, was it the NI, what would, do you remember? The About Herbs app. Yeah, the About Herbs app is the Memorial Sloan yeah, Kettering Memorial app. Memorial Sloan Kettering app. And so that was very mm -hmm. helpful too because um, they gave a lot of information and very specific information that was very useful. Yeah, natural medicines database is the one that I've used personally. Um, that's yeah. yeah, that's that one's. I was kind of stunned at how much information they pack into each and every, uh, um, you know, entry. So that, that's great. Um, what, so as far as like a from a, and this is really just me just getting y'all's opinion. Um, from like a clinical trial standpoint, if you were going to like kind of develop like the ideal clinical trial for this? Because I know the, the studies kind of seem to be all over the place as far as, you know, what they're actually studying, whether or not they're placebo controlled, and then also like what actual markers or primary outcomes you're looking for, whether that's from a, you know, a clinical standpoint from like a patient questionnaire, like we do with some certain depression, you know, treatments and things like that, or is it like a specific biomarker or like, what, what do y'all, in y'all's opinion, what do you use like the ideal clinical trial that would give you the most bang for your buck, if you will? I think we all might have some opinion on that. Uh, standardized extracts were mentioned several times. Now, not all herbs are consumed or suggested by herbalists as standardized extracts. Us with Western pharmacology minds like those because there are certain markers in there to tell the percentage of certain bioactives, bioactives that seem to confer activity, but also need to be within the whole herb to have its maximum activity. Um, it's the, I haven't ever been asked that question about what would be the ultimate design. There are a lot of researchers and clinicians a lot smarter than me that are really working on it all over the country. Surprising to me that several researchers in the middle of the country also, not just on the coast. 
and they're looking on how to work with these bioactive molecules within herbs and create good study designs because clearly as Dr. Swathi said at the beginning, one molecule for one effect with a few side effects is not the way you can really study something as diverse as turkey tail. Um, and so uh, that, that is a, a major reason among many why I like to educate pharmacy students, hoping that some of them will go into research and come up with appropriate research designs for these compounds that have been used traditionally for hundreds and thousands of years. Is that okay to kind of get around your question there? Yeah, for sure. Maybe you have some ideas. <laughs> I was just curious, and this is totally not my wheelhouse, so I was just curious to kind of see, because I've, I've seen so many different ones, just looking through natural medicines database, when you look through the references, there's so many different things. Even I looked at one that was talking about uh, a certain adverse effect, and it said that they, that information was stemming from a study that was looking at that particular herb in dogs that had been put under anesthesia. And I was like, that's a very out of a field kind of uh, study they were looking at. But I mean, I guess, you know, there's such, it seems like there's such scattered, um, studies out there that when you're, you know, when I'm trying to look for them, I, I like to grab the placebo controlled ones, obviously. Cause I think that's one of the big arguments I've, I've personally heard is, Oh, well, it's just a placebo effect. Um, well, is it, or is it, you know, if you have data showing that that's the, you know, contrary to that, that there's evidence showing that the, that they work over placebo, I, that's obviously the best data, in my opinion, um, from a simplistic standpoint, but I was just curious, just, uh, get your thoughts on it. That's all. Well, the other challenge that is not an excuse, but needs to be mentioned is if you take something like rhodiola rosea and fund a study, then every company that makes rhodiola can use that study. And so there's no big economic incentive to do these very expensive, properly designed studies. And I'd never present that as an excuse. It's just a fact. It's an economic fact. You can, some companies will patent their delivery system or patent their particular combination of jacinocides or things like that. It's quite an investment. Yeah, and like you said, it's, you know, not not to say it is an excuse, but it does make a lot of sense. I mean, we I, the first thing that popped in my head was with when we had metformin, um, the different renal adjustments based on serum creatinine versus creatinine clearance or EGFR. Um, that was like something we all knew that it was more on the EGFR side of things versus just a standard serum creatinine cutoff and yet nobody could put that on the label because metformin had been generic for so many years no one wanted to pay for it to have a label changed because then everybody got to benefit from it so it's like who's going to donate the money to get a label so it makes a lot of sense i mean you have a product that's been around for thousands of years it's kind of hard to lay claim to something and and also justify you putting up all that money when you know the all these other companies are going to benefit from it there's not a lot of economic incentive at all It'd be yeah. cool if we could kind of, if there would be some sort of an established, I don't know, how, like, you know, if patent process where if you did some studies like that, you got like exclusivity to that product or something like that. Kind of like they did with like Colchazine or something. Um, that would be really cool if they start implementing something like that. I think that would greatly blow up this this uh, space and the data would come pouring out if they there was some kind of an economic upturn for it. Yeah. I'd like that kind of world too. Dare, dare to dream. Uh, to consider with this is meant, uh, not all, but at least some of the things 
that were discussed today are quite subjective. And when you look at RCTs of SSRIs, you see the immense amount of placebo effect there. And so that's built into the endpoints that we're looking at. How do you measure vitality? There's no code for that. And it's very subjective and it changes all the time. I think we all could look at a few years ago how vital we were and now if we've made changes. The other, if I could go on forever here, the other confounding uh, contributor is that often when somebody has decided to do an herbal product to go that and particularly sought counsel with a specialist, they're also more liable to do other lifestyle changes. And you don't want to factor those out. Exactly. But how do you factor those in? That further complicates it when it's not one molecule for one endpoint. And and I would imagine too, and this is just my thought, I, I haven't had this uh, interaction with a patient myself, but I would imagine if, for instance, a patient comes to you and says, I don't really want to try traditional pharmacotherapy. I want to try this herbal supplement that I've been reading about. And you don't shoot that down as a healthcare professional and you kind of encourage them, talk to them about that, but then also bring up the pharmacotherapy benefits and, and kind of like show that you're listening to their opinion and wanting to kind of make them a part of the decision-making process that would ultimately lead to more, you know, building a more rapport with the patient and then potentially even getting them on board with the pharmacotherapy aspect down the road. I, I would imagine. Many examples of that. Uh, you should see people at my patient's face when I say metformin. I love metformin. What a great drug. And they look at me and it's, they need it with their A1Cs. They really can't fool around with herbal therapy, but diet and exercise therapy, they should incorporate at the same time. So you're absolutely right. You have a good preceptor there. Very, very much uh, uh, in line with what I've seen in community pharmacy for many, many years. Patients really like talking to someone about taking drugs when they also know about some of the other options that are in the lay media. Yeah, I know for me personally, and I know Ryan's heard me say this and probably too many times this month, but the one thing that I always talk to patients about is, look, I'm going to give you a few options that I think are the best, and I want you to tell me which one sounds the best to you. And I, I you know, I might kind of lead them certain ways. By the way, I present things in a certain direction, but I ultimately, I always say, I'm never going to tell you what you have to take. I'm here as, to help you get better and I'm going to lay out all the information. And then also I always encourage them, you know, the metformin thing, I literally have to explain. You know, I heard my friend told me that metformin's poison or it's going to destroy my left. So, you know, I have to explain to that, uh, to, you know, about that issue, like probably five times a week at least. And so that happened this week. Yeah. And it's just one of those. And I always tell people, I actually will tell patients after explaining to them all the information and the, mis the misinformation that's out on the internet and things, I always say, I want you to always bring that stuff to me because I like you knowing what you're putting in your body. You shouldn't just take my word for it. I'm just a guy in a white coat. I don't even wear that half the time. So how, you can't trust me. You got you to gotta ask why and know the kind of, uh, information behind it. And then I'll tell them the why and explain the data and stuff. And I think people, I mean, at least in my experience, patients greatly appreciate when you kind of include them and don't just count them out as like, Oh, just trust me. I got these letters after my name. I got this. And, uh, yeah, when you really bring them in uh, to the process, I think that greatly improves, uh, their compliance to the therapy in the first place. I concur. And I've seen it countless times and it, it's part of the job satisfaction. Absolutely. So, um, 
what, anything else for you, Ryan, as far as questions or anything? Oh, yeah, I was um, kind of going off of what you were saying. If someone comes in and they um, are hesitant about uh, a traditional medicine and they want something for their diabetes that would be more um, like through an or- herbal uh, pathway, um, the problem I have whenever I look these up is that like there's so many different indications or listed indications. I use natural medicines too, and, and when you look up like diabetes, there's like at least like tens and tens of like ones that are like possibly effective according to natural medicines that to help with diabetes. How do you go about picking which one to choose between them? I mean, if there's like a drug interaction or if a disease state, then that might point you in one direction. But otherwise, it seems like it's pretty open ended. Um, true. So you always, I always check as a pharmacist first and, and you're right. It is kind of subjective and often I and the other clinicians I know will use the ones we know best and continue lifelong education. Part of the fun of having students is that they ask questions and why would you use one rather than the other? And honestly, sometimes it's because I'm used to it, but if they know something that would convince me or uh, pique my interest about something else. Now, often what I will do too is ask them what they have in mind. They, they want me to say first, but I try to get them to say first, well, my friend is using whatever, uh, you know, and my friend is using berberine for their diabetes. And I know a bunch about berberine and I could tell this person, patient I'm talking to, because of your medications, I don't want you to be on berberine, but here's a few other choices, because I want their buy-in and their confidence. And I also, if we're talking about diabetes, will not talk to anyone about herbs unless they're checking their glucose. And I ask kind of an open-ended question to find out how many times or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Because if they're not, the risk of hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia is just not worth it going back to what Dr. Swathi said at the beginning, trying to assess the, the risk versus the benefit. It's, it's a bit of an art, and it takes a while to be able to use natural medicines. But um, it, with more exposure, and if you do get patients to open up and talk to you and do a little homework on the side, you get an idea about it. Have you ever had an issue um, with a lot of these uh, herbals? It seems like they a lot of the... Um, indi- the reasoning or the length, the duration of therapy is like eight, six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. Have you ever had an issue where like, oh, it's working great, but maybe you should stop this because we don't know how safe this is for a prolonged period of time? Or in your experience, has it been pretty safe to have d- extended durations of therapy? Is that my question too? For whoever. Yeah. Yes. um, And this is fun. I like being in this position that you guys gave the information and I get to talk about the experience. Uh, Same answer. It really depends who I am and who I'm talking to. So some of my patients or the clinicians that I talk to are very, very strictly evidence-based, kind of a, I don't want to say narrow, but I respect that. I respect everybody's level of comfort with evidence. So if, you have, if you're very strict with the level of evidence, then it's probably good to get off after the amount of time that's been reported or reported in the studies. If you're more towards the uh, 
traditional use and it's been used by my grandparents and my grandparents' grandparents and you know that kind of thing, then we might want to go a little longer. I always want to know what happens after 12 weeks plus two days. <laughs> Uh, probably the funding ended and if it's because <laughs> the funding ended that and and also looking at the risk and benefit um uh, i think almost all of you mentioned what the doses were and particularly with the medicinal mushrooms to hear the range the, we, we tried to find the toxic doses of those medicinal mushrooms and we couldn't find it so that makes me feel a little safer when you start pulling out isolates like the polysaccharides or the, the particular bioactives, that's a different story. That has more drug-like effect. Not drug, but drug-like effect. But as a whole herb, you can eat many of the mushrooms that were talked about. Um, you can have them in fine cuisine. And, and so that confers a little safety to me. But it does depend on the practitioner's comfort level and the patient's comfort level. And I like being the kind of pharmacist that can go either way and anywhere in between. And I would also kind of throw in there too, and if if that's the argument of concern for using these is, oh, well, the studies only went 12 weeks or 24 weeks or, or what have you. Okay, I, I can understand why that would be concerning, but at the same time, you know, we have hypertension studies that went four years, yet we keep patients on an ACE inhibitor for 10, 15 years. So by that logic, are we going to discontinue all of the antihypertensive medications that this patient's on? Um, studies stop for a reason because there's only so much funding. And if you meet clinical, you know, statistical significance, sometimes they're stopped early because we know that those numbers typically are just going to get further and further apart anyway, based on stats. So yeah, I think that's a uh, Something, I mean, I think worth considering, but at the same time, all of our studies have an end point at some point. <laughs> that would have been a better answer for me to leave with. You're absolutely right. And um, very well said. Yes. Um, th there's one more thing to consider since we're looking at this so holistically, which I'm thrilled uh, at the questions that you're answering, is I'll often ask the patient whether they're still having the same problem. And that, that's tricky when it comes to mood, just like knowing when to taper down or discontinue an antidepressant prescription. Um, sometimes patients will just kind of taper down and see, and if the, the original symptoms come back, they can taper back up. Sometimes it's good to take a break, sometimes not, that, um, those kind of things. And for a lot of these, the main topic here was stress resilience. And sometimes the adaptogens and even medication can help us get over the hump and make those important changes. Take the boards, whatever it is, get the job, you know, um, buy the house or go through a tough situation with a parent that you are. And once that's over there, there may be less need for it. So you don't always have to be on them. For someone like myself, whose cognitive function is really important and I deal with sick people all the time, I'm more inclined to stay on these longer time, longer periods of time, just so that my body naturally can be resistant if possible. And getting older doesn't help either. So uh, th those are some of the considerations. I hope cool. that helped. It did, thank you. And, and I would assume too, especially when you're dealing with something like an adaptogen where you're dealing with stress or even potentially like depression or something, you know, it's one thing when we're talking about diabetes where we have 
a few a handful of drug classes that we're going to use that they're going to pretty much work for most people. Um, there's always patients that are resistant, but when we deal with like things that are like I'm more in the psych realm or you know in stress you know factors things like that, it's super variable as far as patient response. So an SSRI might work beautifully for one person and not work at all in other people. And, you know, I've heard an argument of, well, you know, some of these patients, if they're having this stress or this anxiety from something, you know, that's actually a, a chemical imbalance. And, you know, we, that's why we need medication as opposed to something else. Well, if that is truly the only kind of pathophysiology that's going on there, then, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy wouldn't, be all that effective because that's obviously changing perspective and kind of talking through the issues which sure I guess can can alter your neurochemistry but at the same time it's not necessarily um, only because the patient's also on medication too there's some people that can get over depression and go into remission based on just cognitive behavioral therapy so I would imagine that you know that some people you know are going to take certain adaptogens and feel nothing other people would take them and feel great and you know, even if you're going to be completely on the uh, side of, oh, they don't work at all and it's just a waste of money. Well, if the patient feels better, <laughs> for me personally, I don't care what if it's placebo effect or not or whatever. Patient feels better. High five. Let's go. Like, and especially if we're if we know enough about them to look for interactions and adverse effects and things like that, then what's the downside of them? Um, that that's always kind of my thought process. And I'm and I'm by no means like you know, only natural medicines for everybody and no, I'm very obviously, I love pharmacotherapy. I love evidence-based medicine, but at the same time, I think this is super important to like not rule out anything and just to, to look at the data and see patient specific factors and things like that. So I'm, I'm kind of, uh, open to wherever the, the data leaves, if you will. <laughs> That's my two cents to throw in there. So I feel like I'm contributing. <laughs> yeah, you contribute a lot. You had us on. It's wonderful to have a forum to talk about this. And people have to listen. That's the best part. <laughs> I guess not have to, but we trick them into some good stuff and we just fill them with whatever we want to talk about after that. I rope them in. Um, what, if somebody wants to get more information, stay up to date with uh, new data that's coming out or new uh, products that have hit the market, anything like that, new combination products, what, what, is there a good resource um, that you can go to, like, or subscribe to to get emails about or anything like that that would be recommended? Yeah, the first one I think of is consumerlab.com. Um, they get they have very frequent emails, not too frequent that you're annoyed, but just frequent enough. Um, and so I think that the way that they break down everything and, like, the news when it comes to natural medicines, they do a really good job. So I, I try to read them at least once a week. Yeah, that, they come out twice a week. And it's free. That's very important. It's free. That's what I was going to ask. Is that a free thing? So that's great. That's free. Um, that's important. Also, there the NIH has an office of dietary supplements, and they have less frequent emails, but they have a website. They have lots of different things. Um, pharmacists are active with dietary supplements. There's different groups. We belong to different Facebook groups and LinkedIn groups. LinkedIn is a really good way. To, to link uh, to network with Dr. Swathi or with me. And we're always involved. I'm always posting about those kind of things, um, the combination when it's good you know, to use. So uh, I think social media can be helpful if used discerningly. There's so many webinars also. There are professional companies 
that are putting on webinars, they're biased towards their products. And they're also evidence-based. They put the studies on there and can refer to the studies. And so, as I mentioned before, the dietary supplement companies that really try to work with the practitioners, they tend to have pretty high level and scientific webinars. And it's in their best interest to educate the healthcare professional and to answer really tough questions and to go back and forth. About an hour before we recorded this, I sent a question off to my contact with one of them because there was a bit of discrepancy between the two sources that I saw. And I'll, I'll wait, he's in um, Australia, so it'll be a little while till I, but, uh, and so they can be really helpful. And, and I think as pharmacists, we're used to that because we get in drug information from pharma company representatives, medical liaisons, and we know how to parse that. We learn what we can from them and then talk to the next one. So that's one of the ways I think. Uh, and also natural medicines has updates too. Okay. And their newsletter is free. That's good. I, that's great. And I love that you said that about uh, social media being utilized in a positive way because that's, uh, as Ryan knows, that's one of my very big uh, the- theses that I, that I push on all my students. And uh, I, 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 I think I told uh, Swati this, but I, I gave a talk one time at the uh, Kennedy Center um, in Columbia, South Carolina. And I was talking to them about, you know, the conferences and things like that, because that was kind of the main focus of, you know, of the event. They were all there on a Saturday. And I was talking to them about social media and how how great of a tool that is nowadays. And I'm like, you know, it's great that you guys are here on a Saturday. Awesome. We get to talk in person. I'm like, but just throwing this out there, like every single one of you could have just shot me a text because my phone number's on Instagram and uh, we could have talked anytime. You don't have to be at something like this. I'm like, definitely go to conferences, definitely check them out. But there's so much out there at your fingertips now. Like we really have no excuse as far as networking. It's pretty you can do it from your couch at this point so uh um i like that you brought that up too because I, I i hope more and more as time goes on uh pharmacists other clinicians are kind of taking that and and going with it this whole idea of delete your instagram before you apply to residency is kind of crazy to me that's that's what they some schools are telling students now including one that i may have gone to so it's <laughs> so, and they're getting better, but it's just, you know, my, I've always been like, well, if you don't have anything in crazy on your Instagram that you would be ashamed of, then, you know, you probably shouldn't have anything to worry about. But anyways, my listeners have heard me rant and rave about that way too much. They're probably like, oh, geez, here he goes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anything else, y'all, in closing? We covered a lot and uh, just express our gratitude as a group to what you're doing and that you have students on with you and um, really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Happy to have y'all. So thank you guys so much for listening. I will make sure that uh, I put some contact information um, and, you know, social media links and things like that in the show notes. Um, If you guys have any questions, make sure. I know Dr. Swati's real um, good about answering questions and things like that and is okay with that. So, and then anybody else who uh, I get their permission afterwards to put their contact information on there, I'll do that as well. But um, yeah, if you guys have any questions for me, uh, my contact information is obviously always in the show notes. Um, You can get in touch with me over email or any of the social media platforms. You can text me directly if you want at area code 415-943-6116 and if you have any um, comments, questions, concerns um, grievances, 
whatever, um, make sure you let me know. And thank you guys so much for listening. Have a great one.